Welcome to another episode of This Catholic Life. Conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical and joyful. Today's show is East meets West in a world where everyone thinks all Christians are the same, unless they're actually in a particular Christian group. What is this East and West thing? When we say Eastern Christianity and Western Christianity, what do we mean? I'm your host, Peter Holmes, and today I'm joined by Father Antonius, uh, previously a medical doctor. He served as a parish priest or has served as a parish priest of uh, Archangel Michael and St. Bishoy. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, well done. A Coptic Orthodox Church in Mount Druitt in Sydney, Australia, where we first met, I believe. Since 1991, he's been there. He's a researcher, lecturer and author in philosophy. He's married with two children and a number of pets. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Peter. A pleasure, again. And also, uh, a guest is Sam Caldas, who is one of those children, if I'm not mistaken. Director of Research and Philosophy, lecturer at St Cyril's. His research interests uh, range over a wide set of questions about the interface between orthodox theology and philosophy, both ancient and modern, and so they're both well-equipped to discuss this topic. Before we get started, just a reminder that if you like the show, you should subscribe on your podcast app, and that way you won't miss an episode. Let's get right into today's episode, East Meets West, and a short clarification of terms. By the West here, I'm talking about Western Christianity, which seems to be mostly Roman Catholicism and its offshoots, in which I include Protestantism, which is a protest from usually Roman Catholicism, and takes most of its base ideas from that movement. But we're talking here about Eastern Christianity and some a particular kind uh, that uh, my two guests represent. So I'll leave it up to perhaps Father Antonius to give us a brief definition of what we're talking about. First about the East in terms of Eastern Christianity and then specifically where you're coming from. Sure. So Eastern Christians are actually a quite varied bunch. Uh, They would range from the Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Bulgarian, etc., and and include uniate churches with the Catholic with the Roman Catholic Church, so the Maronites, the Melkites, and so on. And then you have the Oriental Orthodox, uh, distinguished by rejecting the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. Uh, that's the group that we belong to, the Copts, with a few others. And uh, not to be forgotten, the Assyrian Church of the East, uh, which at one time, a few centuries ago maybe a thousand years ago, was actually numerically the largest part of the Christian church and spread all the way to India and China and um, sadly has declined significantly since then. So right. we be- we belong to the Oriental Orthodox, uh, that's the Copts, the Syrians, the Armenians, the Ethiopians, Eritreans, and the Indian Orthodox. Wow. Now, you said they're distinguished there by not accepting uh, Chalcedon, the Chalcedonian definitions. I'd have to admit that um, while I've studied those definitions uh, in theology, there wouldn't be a lot of Catholics who would know what you're talking about, A, and B, be able to even identify what would particularly bother them about that particular difference. Do you think is that that's not the only difference, clearly? It was the original difference that caused the split in the church. Um, And it was basically over the question of how we speak of the nature or natures of Christ. So on the Chalcedonian side, on which the West sits, um, they speak of two natures of Christ, the divine and the human, united 
in such a way that you cannot distinguish them, you cannot pull them apart from each other. On the non-Chalcedonian side, the Coptic side, we speak of one nature of Christ, which is, however, made up of the union of the divine and the human in a way such that you can't really pull them apart from each other. And it only took us 1,500 years, that's pretty good in the Christian church, to actually um, officially realize that we were kind of saying the same thing all all the time, (laughs) which is what happened um, after a series of dialogues in the 70s and 80s. And finally, you know, we actually, the, the two sides actually officially agreed we say the same thing on this question. But right. over the 15 centuries, a few other things obviously have popped up <laughs> that are now keeping us out of communion with each other. When it, when it takes us, um, 50, and I do say us because, you know, there's there's two sides to the equation of agreement. But um, when it takes us as Christians 1,500 years to agree on something, usually we get that done and then we say, wait, what have you been up to in the meantime? And uh, we've, we've got a lot of other things to talk about. <laughs> that's that's exactly it, Peter. You've captured it. <laughs> I'm afraid that this is, um, and we, I had a, I mean, this is only a very minute uh, sort of example of this, but when um, uh, I was in my late seminary years in the Lutheran Church, a document was released which was a joint declaration on justification between the Lutherans and the Catholics. And I remember it it coming out and 500 years after Luther's sort of original disagreement. And um, someone was saying, you're all going to go back to uh, to being together now. Mm, yeah. Firstly, the statement just, we mostly agreed to stop calling each other names and misrepresenting each other's positions, which is a large part of the sorting out of uh, these sorts of things. And recognizing that there was a reasonable amount of politics back then, which contributed to the disagreements, uh, which no longer exist. But since then, we have to acknowledge there's been, you know, many, many, many years of other kinds of disagreements and misunderstandings and perhaps misrepresentations of each other's positions, uh, which need to be perhaps put on the table and looked at in an equally honest light. Yeah, I I believe at the moment that the two big issues being discussed between the Catholic and the Oriental Orthodox are the question of purgatory um, and and the the older question of the procession of the Holy Spirit from the Father or from the Father and the Son, the filioque. Which is a question, if I understand correctly, is across the Eastern churches, isn't it? Exactly, yes. That definitely divides along East and West. Right. Yes, again, uh, even though the Catholics would be familiar with saying it in the creed, I'm, I'm not sure how many of them would know what was at stake in that particular question. It's an interesting point that we can be so um, divided by a question. Now, there's, clearly it's significant because whenever you talk about God, everything is, you know, everything matters, and particularly the natures of Christ not being divisible in, as if they were two separate things is, is a crucial point to our understanding of salvation. But it's not, not as not the sort of thing the layman in average circumstances is going to be um, head up about. Unless you are lay people, however, of a much higher quality than um, the, the average Catholic parish. No, look, I have to be honest with you, Peter. I'm not a theologian, and I have a lot of trouble getting my head around <laughs> what the issue is in, in the question of the procession of the Holy Spirit. I'm not quite sure I actually see the problem, but. I'm, I'm, you know, as I say, I'm not a theologian. I don't really, uh, that's not my area. <laughs> Fair enough. One of the things, let, let's sort of dip to a, a kind of similarities and differences question. Clearly, we have a creed which is almost the same. 
in in the sense of the entire understanding of God. And as you've pointed out, even when we're struggling with the wording of our professions of faith, we're often trying to aim at the same aim. You know, we're trying to express the same truths. If you followed, like if you wrote down the basic structure of a mass, for example, you would see pretty much the same structure as there. But I, I mean, I, the the I've only been to a few, but the dozen or so orthodox liturgies that I've been privileged to see, I I, I won't say attended because I don't know what that means theologically. But I was standing, I was allowed to stand in the op- in the foyer sort of area, uh, nave and and watch from the <laughs> the outer. It's quite different to your average Catholic mass. The differences seem to be more than just style. Uh, would you say that's a fair point? I think there are obviously similarities and differences. Right. So my understanding of the historical development is that very early on in history, the Antiochian and the Alexandrian uh, liturgical traditions were kind of distinguished from each other. Um, and from the Alexandrian, we developed one of the three liturgies that we currently use in the Coptic Church, the liturgy of St. Mark, now called St. Cyril's. But the other two that we use, St. Basil's and St. Gregory the Theologian's liturgies, belong to the, actually to the Antiochian tradition, from which also comes the Byzantine and the Western, the, the Roman um, liturgical tradition. So there are similarities because of the shared um, history there. For example, the anaphora. I, I'm sure you would have heard the priests say, lift up your hearts. We have them with the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord, and so on. There's obviously the institution narrative of the Last Supper, the bread and the wine. Um, so th- I think the basic structure is the same. Probably, as you mentioned, the differences come in the chanting. We, we still pretty much chant everything with a melody and particularly mm. with a me- with a melismatic chant um, right I, what, what's I, what's I, a mel what does it, sorry i mispronounced it already what's a melismatic chant so it's it's where you spend a long time saying single syllables so rather than saying amen we would say something <laughs> like ah yes so I won't go on because so the, the old joke about you know Catholics turning our men into a twenty-three syllable word is uh, true of you oh, as well. We're well over two hundred syllables. <laughs> yes. um, but I think the other difference is, uh, and I, look, I probably don't know enough about the Catholic liturgy, but certainly in, in the in the Oriental liturgy, in the Eastern liturgy, there's um, a much more sort of mystical sort of approach, a timeless approach, a spaceless approach a sense of um, all things becoming one in Christ who kind of unites us all. And, and that sort of is expressed in, in the one voice, in, in the one loaf of bread. We use leavened bread, not um, wafers. The one cup from which everyone partakes. Again, you know, generally everyone who has the body has the blood uh, in, mm. in, the, in the Orthodox Church. So they're the kinds of differences I, I, I would probably point to. Um, and mm. also maybe the fact that we pray pretty much the same liturgy week after week. Um, there really is very little, you know, there are a few seasonal variations uh, depending on, you know, Christmas, Easter, etc. cetera. Uh, but by and large, there's not a lot of like flexibility or change that happens. I once uh, had a discussion with um, an, a Russian Orthodox fellow and being a Western-trained theologian, they're very concerned about when exactly, precisely, 
the Eucharist is changed into the body and blood of Christ, and they try to nail down exactly the moment. And he was confused about our discussion, and simply, and we said, "Well, so when is it in the in the, the Russian liturgy?" And he simply said, "You just do the liturgy. You just <laughs> say the liturgy. <laughs> you." You don't mess with the mystery. You just say the liturgy, and we said, "Oh, but what if you know?" And no, no, he wouldn't. He wouldn't take it from it. You, you just do the liturgy. There's a there's a sense of um, uh, in the West of trying to take things apart as if we were surgeons or as if we had some kind of minute understanding of a mystery. And, and the sense I get from the Eastern Church is that they're much readier, much more ready to accept the mystery and simply um, be taken by it. Is that a fair comment? Orthodox theologians have, like liturgical theologians in the last century, have made a, uh, they've written whole books about how the difference between Catholic and Orthodox liturgy is in that that question. Um, I think some of them sort of over exaggerate the the question, uh, but yeah, definitely the the emphasis is more on um, the, uh, the 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 sort of the the plain um, the plain significance of partaking in partaking of the body and blood of Christ, and also I think there's a um, often there's an emphasis on uh, the uh, church as a whole, like the body, that the people, as much as the elements of the sacrament, becoming the body and blood of Christ. Uh, so, I mean, but see, I mean, I, th I think that I'm really sort of conscious when we talk about sort of East and West that these aren't really fundamental differences in sort of Eucharistic theology or liturgical theology between East and West. These are just differences of emphasis um, that have historical reasons for why sort of different Different sectors mm. talk in different ways, so I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say that those are fundamental like characteristics of either Eastern or uh, Western. But in terms of emphasis, one of the uh, cautions I would add as a theologian is that almost every heresy that's come up has come up because someone has seen something good and emphasised it to the point where mm. it's excluded some other good, uh, or that it's, it's 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 overemphasis has ended up uh, push, pushing too much another way. And in in and then the other opposite side of that is that um, almost every time the church has leaned in particular too far in one direction, it has been someone emphasising what they're missing, which has drawn them back, if you like, towards the the, the riches of what they're dealing with. So emphasis is a good thing; it helps us to recognise what's there in every mass. Let's let's say, um, well, at least in the in the Catholic, from the Catholic perspective. Uh, we recognize the validity uh, that's the word we use but basically the presence of christ in our eastern uh, brothers and sisters masses and and in ours and yet the way in which each of them are conducted adds a different emphasis if you like to to what what's going on there and the the, the central mystery of our faith kind of thing mm. so each it, i'd like to say each are as valuable um from my perspective sometimes you know the grass is greener you know you <laughs> look out across the way and you think oh wouldn't it be great if we had a bit more of that what about can i come to you sam as a, a younger fellow and we met oh gee it's nearly a decade ago now <laughs> um uh in an eastern church now this is the person on the street would normally associate that kind of liturgy with old folk you know all oh, the oldies doing all that sort of um old school liturgy or at least in the catholic church they would but in fact, what I'm seeing is that younger people are much more interested in the mystery. They're much more enticed by something which is a bit otherworldly. It's that's not their usual experience in modern culture. Would you say that's the case uh, for you or for for your contemporaries? 
I think it definitely is the case for for me and for a lot of my friends too. Yeah, I think there is a. I mean, yeah, your your listeners are probably very familiar with it, but um, especially as immigrants in the in Western countries or the children of immigrants, we do a lot of young people have a sense of we feel really keenly the kind of disenchantment of the world uh, that that sort of comes with modern secular culture. Um, and the fact that you have on a on a Sunday this sort of you know you're transported into a another century it feels like sort of you know in terms of what it sounds like what it smells like what it looks like um, that can be a very enchanting thing and it does bring a sort of element of um, an other world you know with a capital O into the one's everyday experience and I think yeah a lot of a lot of young people do find that attractive although I mean I got to say as well sort of growing up in the in, in the West I'm also sort of conscious of um, how that that mystical uh, aspect can itself become a kind of distraction, and it can very easily become a sort of liturgical idolatry. Uh, not not that it always does, um, but I think that that's something that because it's so much more prominent on uh, in, in our in our Eastern Church, was we have, we have such there's so much so much potential to I mean there's so much material there for you to make uh, an idol out of the liturgy if you wanted to. It's something we tend to be a bit more. Let's let's push that a little bit, and I'll come back to Father on this one. The um. The purpose of the the if you if I can risk using an, a, a Western well, it's not Western philosophical term it's a philosophical term of accidents if you like the purpose of the accidents of a liturgy is to draw us into the the center of the mystery right and if I'm understanding Sam correctly saying that if we if we make the accidents themselves the the music the 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 sort of the forms themselves the main point of us being there. Uh, it that itself becomes worshiping something which is made rather than the creator himself is do you think that's a fair call it's possible even to take something as beautiful as the liturgy and make that into something unhealthy yeah look at I, I totally agree um I, I i to give a concrete example um you know our chants are very long and complex and beautiful and we generally have choirs um mostly male at the moment and that's another thing that's happening in the church at the you know another conversation that's going on but you know it takes them many years to learn to sing those tunes which are often chanted in the ancient coptic language the ancient language of egypt which is a dead language nobody speaks that language so it's very easy for someone who's invested all that time and effort to learn those coptic tunes to then sing them without even knowing really exactly what the words mean and, and what they're really saying. Now, you know, I don't want to give the wrong impression. They're aware of the general sense of what, what's going on and how it fits into the bigger picture and so on. But, um, it, you know, it, it can become something of um, yeah, an enticement away from the goal of that singing in the first place, which is to elevate the heart and bring it into the presence of Christ. Um, mm. and, and look, I, I, that sounds a little bit Western in itself, right? <laughs> Be, because it's like almost if you don't know the, you know, the, 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 the rational <laughs> meaning of the words, then you haven't really prayed. And of course, you know, there are prayers without words. You know, a person might actually be genuinely lifted into the presence of God without focusing on the meaning of the words. But it is mm. a risk. It is a temptation that's there. Having said that, of course, if our prayer is enhanced by music, I think, was it Augustine who said, he who sings prays twice? 
uh, or someone, I think it was him who said something like that, where, where if you sing a prayer, he says you, you're, you're doubly praying uh, because you're lifting all more of yourself in prayer than just, just intellect. The, the liturgies themselves can enhance us, and given how difficult it is in some circumstances to pray with the with you know how could we ever reach the proper amount of devotion to our lord but given how difficult that is in ordinary circumstances why not take hold of all of the opportunities we have all the art the the music the beauty that we can put in and perhaps we can talk about icons um in a little while it seems to be a no-brainer that we would simply bring everything that is good and true and beautiful uh, into our help to help us worship so long as as sam's pointed out none of those become idols in themselves but I, I guess I'm, I'm intrigued by the, the modern fascination with, you know, this mysterious uh, religious experience. In um, America, a whole class of Lutheran seminarians in my time all left and became Greek Orthodox, all of them, just in, in one group. Mm, there's and, a lot of stories uh, like that. Where, where an entire group has become enchanted with the liturgy so much that they've eventually just up and, and, and move themselves. And... I remember hearing a psychologist talk about the movie Avatar when it came out. I know this sounds a bit left field, but when it hit the cinemas, there was a post-Avatar depression syndrome where people went into Avatar and it was such bright colours and music and a different world and they were transported out of their existence. When they came out, they were very depressed to find out reality just didn't, you know, didn't measure up. And so they went in and while Avatar was still screening until it stopped screening and, and they, they couldn't deal with it. That's a bit of a sad story if that's the the pinnacle of their life, but the point is, is it was they when they came out they realised it was empty, because they they may have been aesthetically lifted, but they weren't lifted to anything, whereas the liturgy lifts us um, aesthetically, but it lifts us to something of to the greatest thing of substance, which is God, uh, it, and I'm intrigued by the young people who are looking not just for aesthetics but for meaning who are lifted into this liturgical world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's exactly why I'm so. Um, I mean, I think that that's that's why I sort of added that caveat about um, sort of liturgical idolatry because I think I, I have sort of seen even among my own friends that sort of there, there can come a sort of second disillusionment where you turn initially to the liturgy as something that um, is very aesthetically appealing and very sort of transporting, but then if if uh, you know if if it's not if you don't keep the ultimate goal in mind, uh, that all of those things are there, as you, as you put it, to sort of as as means or vehicles with which to connect to God, who gives the actual substance to life, then yeah, there can come a sort of second wave of disenchantment where you realise that you what you were attracted to was the smells and the sounds and the the sights rather than um, the Christ who was shining through them. But yeah, I mean, I, I mean, like you said, it's not the solution. Isn't iconoclasm? The solution isn't to get rid of those things. It's just to keep them in their proper place, um, and they can be very powerful. I was just going to add, uh, if I could briefly, that um, one of the um, areas of research I'm interested in is uh, called embodied cognition, uh, which is a big thing these days in cognitive science and in philosophy of mind. And it's the idea that uh, we normally think of our thinking as being something that just happens in the brain. But it actually turns out that it's the whole body taking part in different ways in that thinking process. And even wow. the environment around us and tools that we use and things that we interact with, um, all of these things are actually forming the one single integrated system 
um, out of which our thoughts come and, and to isolate that's what amazing. goes on in the brain from what all the other stuff that's going on, you can never actually really get the full picture of, of, of your thinking of what's going on and your emotions wow. and, you know, all cognition. And, and I think that, the, you know, the, the genius of um, ancient styles of prayer that include the senses of, you know, smelling the incense and looking at the icons and so on, um, without knowing all this modern um, stuff, I think they, they understood that the whole person needs to be involved in that relationship with God. Um, well, this is a, a same answer I had from a, um, a Russian Orthodox fellow that I spoke to. Being an arrogant young Lutheran seminarian, I was sent to research them. <laughs> so I went in and had a talk to him and I asked him, he, he led me through uh, into the main area of the church and, and I looked around and saw all the icons all over the walls and the iconostasis I'd heard about in and I'd spoken about in theology, but I hadn't seen one. And I said, aren't people distracted by all this busyness? And he said, no. He said, I'm not so arrogant as to believe that they need to be listening to my words um, when I preach. If a child is, is the boring old priest is talking and the child looks over here, St. Peter preaches to him. And if he looks over here, the angels preach to him. In other words, their senses are being assailed and, and they're being completely absorbed in the mystery of this of the liturgy. That's beautiful. Hmm. Yeah. The, I mean, <laughs> I learned a lot of harsh lessons going into different churches. One of the Maronites, um, I had a bit of a shot at. He, I sat through a mass of his, and he said, um, uh, "Was there anything different?" And he was very hospitable, giving me a cup of tea afterwards, and said, "Was there anything different?" I said, "Yes, yes. Well, the words of institution were different. Yeah, we use the Greek, of course, from the scriptures." And he <laughs> said, uh, "Yeah." We use the Aramaic, which Jesus actually spoke. <laughs> All right, I deserved that. <laughs> yes, it's one well, of the questions we use Coptic, I would put, which is the language that the angels speak. So we, <laughs> you could say one of the most ancient and um, yes. <laughs> reverent languages of the church, and be quite truthful. Um, I'm a, a biblical scholarship is my area, and quite often you'll find in the the textual notes at the bottom of the the Greek text in particular, but also um, some of the Greek translations of the Old Testament, Coptic translations are some of the earliest and most uh, authoritative, uh, you know, witnesses to what the original translations were because it was such an early and rich heritage. So no loss of respect there from biblical scholars. <laughs> um, coming back to the, the cultural thing, um, Sam, you've, you've had your foot in, or both of you have had your foot in both worlds uh, you know, here in Australia for some time now. What would you say uh, that the Eastern uh, cultures bring to uh, Christianity in the West? What, what's what, a couple of things that you could put your finger on and say these are the things we believe we bring to the Western Church? It's a it's a tough question because I feel in a lot of ways that's a question that um, I, I would want to leave to a Western Christian to answer. To sort of you know just say hey look here, here here we are is is there whatever you you feel in your um, sort of discernment of your own situation uh, is a, an emphasis that complements yours. Um, you're welcome to, but I, I suppose no, it's a very wise answer, and I, I'm, <laughs> I'm pondering the fact that your your answer itself is probably wisdom that you brought to us because we're quite ready to tell you what we have to offer. <laughs> we, so you've already given us something. So there you go. <laughs> uh, oh, the the only thing, and at the risk of completely undermining the, the, the wisdom, I just. Uh, uh, but I mean, the um, 
one of the really interesting emphases that I find um, in Eastern Orthodox critiques of uh, Western liturgical theology, in, of the sort that you were describing before about the sort of emphasis on you know the moments of transformation or the accidents versus substance, um, is that also in in responding to that, a lot of especially Russian um, liturgical theologians like to bring the emphasis back on the connection between the sacrament and the people, and emphasize that it's not just the bread. I mean, obviously Catholics would agree with this too, but just a matter of emphasis, but it's not just the bread and the wine that are transformed into the body and blood of Christ, but it's the people, the people as well in partaking of them. So you sort of get this triangle relationship between you've got Christ at the top and then there's the the elements of the Eucharist, but then there's the, uh, the people, the human beings who partake of it as um, mm. unitedly becoming the body and blood of Christ. Um, There's certainly the, an emphasis in Western Western liturgical theology of that nature, but what tends to accompany that in the West, when they talk about the the, the people being an important element of that that triangle, is that we tend to use that as um, a reason for changing the liturgy into something that is more a child of this last decade than mm, any mm, part in terms of the of ancient church. Getting participation from sort of like visible participation from the the laity is that the sort of thing? Uh, yes, or, but you could you can have visible participation from the laity just by singing. Um, mm. uh, what we're talking about here is when when they want to the, the key word which is often misused is relevance. We've got to make mm. the liturgy more relevant to the people, meaning mm. it's got to sound like the pop song they heard on the radio on the way to mass, you know, sort of thing. I'm intrigued that many people are talking about the. In, from the Eastern perspective, about the engagement and involvement of the laity in the entire equation without it being a direct undermining of the liturgical... <laughs> uh, well, it depends know, on who you ask, but, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't Fair think enough. it's a direct undermining, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, good, good. Father, anything to add on that one? Perhaps what the East, um, that you think the East has uh, as a treasure that we might be we might value? Um, yeah, going on from that idea that Samuel mentioned about uh, the people becoming the body and blood of Christ, um, I, I think, I mean, if I can put it this way, the West had that whole crisis over faith alone or faith and works, and the East kind of wasn't really involved in that whole discussion. And there's actually a reason why, I think, and, and this is how I understand it, at least. I could be wrong. I think for us, it's never been uh, a question between those two things. It's always been about something that lies behind or underneath them both, which I call being, at, at the risk of sounding like a continental philosopher. It, it's about <laughs> what we are. Right, it's about the nature of what we are, and from that, you know, in 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 Eastern Christianity, the goal is to be the image and likeness of God. The goal is to be a little Christ by nature, by our very essence, to be to be transformed into that. We think of repentance not as making up for something you did wrong, but as changing the very way you think. Is that what St. Paul means when he's in 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 exhorting? Christians to act in a certain way, he says, this is not how you learned Christ. Yeah, yeah, I think that's very relevant, yeah. And, and yeah, exactly, that, that learning Christ is about having the mind of Christ, thinking mm. like Christ, the, the pattern, the shape of my mind and the way I see the world 
becomes identical to the shape of how Christ sees the world and, and thinks. Mm. And from this, from this being, then comes the faith, and from it comes the works. And and actually, even if you have, you know, if you believe in the right creed with your mind and you give money to the poor, but you are not like Christ, you can still be missing the whole point, right? So I, I think that's, again, you know, as Samuel said, it's not, it's not like, you know, one side is right and one side is wrong. It, there's very much of that in both East and West, but it is something that I think the East emphasizes a little bit uh, more clearly. Right. It's interesting you say that. I mean, that the mind of Christ is emphasized in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, and emphasizes the very nature of Christ's love being total self-sacrificial love for for us. Um, emptying of himself and then being raised up by God. Uh, but the the 1 Corinthians 13 passage about if you have all of these works and you don't actually have that central love of God, then you, you've lost the whole lot. Um, yeah, that's no, exactly it, no, yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. And probably our attempt to s- segregate things and segment them and look at them individually has has led us to emphasize things and i think this comes back to sam's earlier point when we talk about the obvious outpouring the things you do we've tended to say oh wait you're just talking about works now (laughs) and and often there's there's people in the church who are very keen on that and they end up emphasizing social justice to the expense of other parts of doctrine and then the other people overemphasize doctrine at the expense of action um, so that's a really good point. Perhaps if I can, I mean, I've been hinting at and saying all along, I think the East has to offer us that sense of mystery and join, as you say, the coherence of everything coming together. Some things that modern scholars are very concerned about, such as the social justice angle or the, um, the involvement of the laity, are encompassed in a, a tradition that's so ancient is actually a, something that's just not an idea that's thought about much in the West because we see these as modern accretions, if you like. Um, the social justice angle, um, what we call liberation theology, these kinds of things tend to be reactions in a particular direction which end up dumping the whole baby with the bathwater and just going off after one emphasis. The emphasis isn't wrong, it's just the enthusiasm ends up losing everything else. So I think you could um, remind us, if you like, of the ancient connectedness of all these things i'm not sure what the west has to offer you so maybe i should take sam's wisdom and uh, (laughs) but the only thing i can think of to ask you from our perspective is it must be frustrating sometimes being in a country where there's so few of the citizens are involved in your particular uh, faith uh, and that other christians simply don't some of them don't even know that you would exist is there some way in which our um, the slightly more numerous uh, Christians in Australia could uh, contribute in some way, if not with our theology or our perspective on liturgy, then at least with um, some kind of understanding and uh, advocacy? Uh, look, I think two things that immediately spring to mind. Um, one is the West, I think, has done a much better job at integrating reason with faith than the East has. There, there is, I think, a trend in some sectors of the Eastern Christian world to almost 
look down on reason, almost as being a lack of faith or you know a weakness of faith. If if you have to ask questions, then you don't believe properly. <laughs> and, and I'm I mean obviously giving an exaggerated uh, description there, uh, and and I think that's something that East definitely needs to learn from the West how to disagree well. Often in Middle Eastern culture, to disagree on a, on a, on an idea means to to stop being friends. You know, you take it personally. How it's sort of like how can you disagree with me? <laughs> it's well, an offence. I hope, <laughs> I hope that the West has has not forgotten that. But in in recent <laughs> political debates, we seem to have um, overlooked our past <laughs> abilities. There, I hope that our modern um, the modern public debate isn't giving you. Uh, a false yes. idea of how there, there, there is a degree of regression, I think, happening in certain parts of the world uh, of the Western. That's a world very elegant way to put it, Father. I must use that in another conversation. A degree of regression is a beautiful way of putting what I would have said a, a complete demise of any kind of rational debate. Um, uh, but yeah, look, and, and the, sorry, the second thing I'll just say quickly is in the area of charity. I, I have to say that um, the Catholic Church, in particular, um, you know, Saint Vinnie's. Mother Teresa, uh, just in that area of practical, concrete acts of love. Uh, I think we, we, in the East, we do have charities and so on, but we certainly don't do it as well as the West. And, and I think that's something we definitely benefit from. Sam, is there anything you'd like to add to that? Uh, no, I mean, those are exactly the, the two that I would have identified as well. I mean, I, I don't need to sort of restate them, but I think I would sort of... Um, it's interesting to note that I think both of those come from the, you know, the, the strengths that we were talking about that Eastern Christianity can bring to Western Christianity. I think uh, the sort of flip side of the weaknesses that Father was speaking about, because um, you know, the the for example, you know, like the, the sort of whole whole holistic, um, coherent approach um, to liturgy and and social justice and that sort of thing. I think comes from the fact that Eastern Christians weren't involved in the um, cultural debates that caused the sort of like the strong emphasis in the West on one side versus the other. But as a result, I think that sort of the fact that we weren't involved in those conversations mean that we're still learning to take a lot of those modern questions seriously. Um, because, you know, the modern science and modern skepticism and, and social justice issues, they are, a lot of them are, are new problems. I mean, um, social justice has always been around, but I think a lot of scientific and, you know, modern science has raised a lot of questions for faith. Um, that mm. Western Christians have done much a much better job of uh, engaging with than Eastern That's Christians right. who who can often too easily, and I you know I, I don't think it's completely misguided to sort of to um, uh, bring mystical experience and and religious experience into that conversation. But I also am, am wary as a you know as as someone who studied philosophy. I sort of I'm, I'm I've never been quite comfortable a lot of orthodox make fun of me for it but you know there's that they don't make fun of dad because he's a priest but i, I get all that that's true that's true um because yeah no i do i do have friends who sort of say oh, why, why do you need philosophy you can just sort of you know you, you know that christ you know why would you need for example to look at historical apologetics for the resurrection because you know that christ is risen just by attending the easter liturgy and feeling him rise in your heart and like I said, I don't think that's not. I, I don't think that's completely misguided. I think there's a very important point there about the fact that, you know, the resurrection isn't just a historical event. It's something that 
is a real concrete, tangible part of any Christian life. So I, I think that emphasis is valid. But at the same time, uh, you know, I can't help the fact that I'm a sort of modern Western person who studied history at university. So I want to, I want to know if the historical evidence sort of flatly disproves whether that, that Jesus existed at all, or whether the, you know, whether it, mm. you can possibly be a rational, um, you know, a good historian and believe that Christ rose from the dead. Th- those questions are still important to me, and I don't feel sort of, I don't feel comfortable using my uh, experience um, to sort of sidestep those questions. So I think that, and the same same with social justice, you know, I think because um, we can tend to be such cultural bubbles, you know, and like I said, you sort of step into a different century every every Sunday, which is nice in some ways, but it also can become a, um, a shield uh, to protect us from the need to engage with issues, you know, the, the, the needs of our neighbours right, right, right next to us. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a really good point you make there about the the there is a kind of a liturgical revival amongst the young people of the Catholic Church, and when I say kind of a liturgical revival, I'm very conscious of who I'm talking to here. Um, and when we talk about a liturgical revival, we've we've recovered some of the beauty of the majesty of of mystery of the mass, but um, in some cases, it's come at the expense of charity. And that's not that's too high a price to pay, mm. and I'm not. Uh, I'm very much endeared to a beautiful liturgy. I travel quite a way to get to one. Yeah, the expense of charity is too high a price uh, because it's the the cost you're paying there is Christ. Because as you said, you can't lose Christ at the center of it all. Mm. One of the theologians who really influenced me, um, sort of growing up and still today, is Father Alexander Schmemann, who's a who's a Russian liturgical theologian who wrote a lot about um, orthodoxy in the West. And one of his big sort of take-home messages in all his his writings is that the liturgy uh, is a pattern for life, and so he he has this sort of emphasis on the um, uh, he sort of picks it up with uh, or Henri Nouwen picks it up in the, so in the in, in the Latin right um, the priest uh, dismisses the people with uh, missa est, and and he liked to emphasize that that's a, a reminder that the liturgy is a mission right it's a at the end of the liturgy you're sent out to then carry what you've seen or to to be a witness of what you've seen um in the world outside you um so i think yeah that's a I just just sort of i'm just adding that on that point of liturgy leading or, or informing our social justice and practical work as christians if i can uh, get all western on you um there's a latin saying lex arundi lex credendi and oh that's one of Simon's favorite favorite <coughs> phrases actually so yeah <laughs> there you go and, and sometimes added lex vivendi um, the mm. law of prayer is the law of belief or law of the heart and uh, lex vivendi, which becomes the law of life. And as a, an Old Testament scholar, uh, the prophets are always on about worship because they know that you get your worship right mm. and then you understand God and therefore you cannot help but love your neighbour. And if you're loving your neighbour, you, your worship is always going to be wrong. Sorry, if you fail to love your neighbour, mm. your worship is always going to be wrong uh, because you haven't brought the heart into the worship that sounds about the time to wrap up the podcast for this week that's it for this week's podcast so if today's discussion got you thinking arguing with your podcast device or you have some more input and you think we've forgotten something of course we have because listen 45 minutes is way way too short to talk about all these issues but you can subscribe to the podcast at thiscatholiclife.com.au you can tell us what you like what you didn't like what you'd like us to discuss perhaps we should have Um, these two gentlemen back and talk about the things we've missed hit us up on any of the social medias facebook discord instagram twitter 
and give us a review on iTunes if you can. Before we go, we normally have a shout out to people, um, uh, just a hello or a, or a, an acknowledgement of someone. So, Sam, would you like to shout out to anybody? Um, so I should probably shout out to uh, our Coptic Theological College where uh, Dad and I both um, uh, teach and, and, and work. Uh, so if you want to, um, anyone wants to learn more about um, Oriental Orthodox theology um, and, and Eastern Christianity, liturgy and uh, biblical studies from an from Eastern Christian approach and that sort of thing, um, yeah, just look up stcyrils.edu.au and uh, yeah, I think that's that's good for me. Good, good. Father? Yeah, um, I'd like to uh, give a shout out to any Indigenous listeners who are listening today. Um, It's it's been obviously a topic on the news lately, um, and it's something that uh, I feel like that's something we have in common, whether you're Catholic or Orthodox or whatever you might be. Um, We all need to care for each other and look after each other. Indeed. Well said. Um, In fact, you pinched my uh, shout out so i'm going to join my voice to yours and say um rather than being swept up with uh not that overseas issues are aren't things we shouldn't be concerned about but we do have a lot to be thinking about here in australia in terms of not just our history but our present practice and in sydney we have such a wide variety of cultures here uh, that we should at least be aware of the value and the care we need to take in not just preserving those cultures but respecting people from different backgrounds and cultures and I think that's particularly the case in case of our Indigenous brothers and sisters so well said that's all for now thank you for listening to This Catholic Life